All right, we ended up talking about the moon. Let, let's stay in space, shall we? NASA has sent off uh, what's called the Lucy spacecraft to uh, study the Trojan asteroids of the planet Jupiter. It's a very ingenious probe. It's going to go out, and uh, I think it's going to whip past the, the inner planets, I think, go out to Jupiter, getting a gravity assist, and then it's going to sort of do a figure eight around Jupiter and look at, I think, two sets of Trojan asteroids, which are which are asteroids that, that, that exist in an area where the Sun and Jupiter balance off in their gravity. There's a stable position. They're called Lagrange points. And um, it is possible for an asteroid to, to find itself in that region and get locked in space, where then orbits either 60 degrees in front of or 60 degrees behind, in this case, Jupiter. Yes, and I'm finally reading the article that I had about this. It does mention, yes, two flybys of the Earth to build up momentum, and then it'll be slung, slung out to Jupiter. There's apparently another asteroid that's on the path it'll be able to intercept. They named it Donald Johansson, who was the discoverer of Lucy, the famous fossilized skeleton of a human ancestor for which the mission is named, for reasons I don't quite understand. And, uh, well, I was actually, I just misspoke talking about a figure eight around Jupiter to see the other set of Trojans. To get to the other set of asteroids that are like in front of Jupiter. It's going to have to make a swing back to the Earth and slingshot around us again to go back out by 2033 to take a to take a look at the, well, in this case, it's the trailing swarm. They're going to look at the, the, the swarm that's leading the planet, then the swarm that's trailing the planet. It's going to be really cool stuff. The, this collection of asteroids, which Jupiter's gathered up, uh, has as different uh, color and reflectivity of their surfaces they may indicate vastly different compositions or birthplaces of the asteroids, and by God, we're going to learn a lot. By the way, they've also now concluded, as fresh as today's headlines a few days ago, that uh, the Earth does in fact have Trojan asteroids 60 degrees off of our orbit. They just found the second one, and I would assume, not being an expert on orbital mechanics, that those might be easy places to visit. We are going to visit um, a pair of asteroids out in space with the intention of slamming into one of them and then seeing what effect that impact had on its orbit. We're able to do this because uh, the pair of asteroids has one large component and one small component. We're going to try and hit the smaller one, after which it will be possible for observers to recalculate the orbit quite accurately. They'll be able to tell how much force uh, was transferred to the smaller object and uh, we're going to learn a lot from that, too. And this may be very important stuff to learn about since um, asteroids do occasionally crash into the Earth and cause a lot of trouble. I know for a fact that a regular listener of this program has recently done a presentation on the subject of asteroid impacts on the Earth, and perhaps we can coax her into coming on this uh, program and telling us what she's learned. On less cool news from space, in fact, it's, it's not cool news at all. It turns out that the Russians have tested what's called an anti-satellite probe, if you want to call it that. They basically slammed a satellite into another satellite and blew it apart to something like 1,500 pieces, which is which is really, really, really stupid thing to do. It certainly demonstrates that in, in time of war, and of course satellites would be very important in a time of war, one nation can go up and take its opponent's satellites out. And in further stupid news from space, we have an article from The Economist 
from November 27th issue showing how, um, well, it has a very, very disgusting photo of, of a deep space object taken through a telescope where the image is being marred by something like 25 streaks of light, which are satellites passing through the field of view. The idea that this great heritage of all mankind, that of the night sky, is going to be commandeered by Silicon Valley billionaires to make even more money off of uh, 5G and other technologies that will supposedly allow people in in, out-of-the-way places to download faster. So yeah, yeah, trash the night sky of planet Earth so that someone in Addis Ababa can download Pootie Tang in 60 seconds instead of five minutes. Huge, huge step forward for mankind. Yes, Mr. Miller, I know you're impressed by the fact that we worked Pootie Tang in twice in one show. I didn't think you could do it. And, and I'm not going to even go into what, what, what the Chinese are up to right now because it's just it's, it's too disturbing. Let's, 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 but let's, let's, let's stay in the mood of, of stupid news. And my God, that makes the job pretty easy because there's no shortage of that stuff. We have a piece from one of our local uh, throwaway newspapers here in the East Bay, that uh, a, l- a little editorial that I think I want to quote from. The column was titled Earth Talk, and the question posed by the author was, should we ditch the gas stove? To quote from the piece, walking into your kitchen to make dinner appears relatively simple. Well, not to me it doesn't. With a gas-powered stove readily available to cook your every desire. But while rotating the switch to turn on a gas stove, most people do not consider its health and environmental implications. According to a University of California Los Angeles report, more than 90% of gas-powered appliances in California residences emit toxic pollutants such as carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxides, and particulate matter and formaldehyde. Well, I'd stop right there and say if you're burning cleanly, you shouldn't be producing a lot of carbon monoxide, and I've never heard of formaldehyde coming out of my gas stove, but I don't know. Maybe some does. Later in the piece, the UCLA researchers found that 9 out of 10 residences surveyed where gas ovens or stoves were in use, peak levels in nitrogen dioxide, NO2, inside the kitchen after cooking for one hour, surpassed both state and national outdoor acute air quality standards. To which I say, yeah, outdoor standards, if they're really high concentrations of nitrous oxides, could be bad. Inside, well, you know, I think you could have a little leeway here. Did you not turn the fan on over your oven? Anyway, this hit piece continues. Additional risks of cooking with gas include increasing risk of lung disease and vulnerability to novel viruses. Holy crap! We're in a coronavirus pandemic and I'm still using a gas stove? Not to mention the prompting of new allergies. Children risk a decreased IQ, learning deficits, and asthma. I don't know, maybe the person that wrote this piece grew up in a house that had a gas stove, but we don't think that can fully account for her low IQ. But it goes on. Gas stoves are also a source of carbon monoxide, a pollution that is fatal in extremely high concentrations. You know what's also fatal in extremely high concentrations? Water. If you're completely surrounded by water and you inhale it, it'll bring on death in five to six minutes. Anyway, the piece goes on to explain why we should all be using electric stoves of one sort or another. And, you know, I have no reason to suspect that the electric stove industry had anything to do with this piece. But I, I am pretty sure that it isn't a free ride when it comes to generating electricity. No matter how you choose to generate it, there's going to be some environmental consequences. 
Hydroelectric is supposed to be nice and clean, but have you ever seen how many river valleys got flooded to be turned into reservoirs? Solar panels are great, but they have a lifetime and will have to be disposed of at some point. Wind turbines are good, but have you seen the, uh, the toll they take on birds and bats? If you're generating electricity by burning coal or even natural gas, you know, hey, same, same. Nuclear power, don't have to tell you, has, has environmental issues associated with it. Although we take the position in this program that it is idiotic that we're not using more of it. It does not have a carbon footprint. Hello. But this very question of, uh, of hidden environmental costs for supposedly clean energy technology was actually the cover story of a new scientist, November 13th uh, issue. And I think uh, I should talk a bit about this article by Graham Lawton. The piece talks about something we haven't even mentioned, how it is that Batteries, wind turbines, solar panels, and other clean energy technologies require more minerals to be extracted from the ground. And, of course, the question is, can that ever be green? Notes the piece. If the unofficial rallying cry of the fossil fuel lobby is, drill, baby, drill, renewable energy should have one, too. Dig, baby, dig. If we're going to hit our climate targets, the... If we're going to hit our climate targets, the world's going to need a lot of new mines. The piece quotes, the piece quotes Fatih Biral, executive director of the International Energy Agency, the IEA, as saying minerals are essential ingredients of the future clean energy systems. If we try to visualize our future systems, millions of electric vehicles, cars, buses, windmills, solar panels, They need minerals to build. Huge amounts of minerals. Said author Graham Lawton, he isn't exaggerating. According to a recent IEA report, if the world is to reach its target of net zero carbon emissions by 2050, overall demand of what it calls critical minerals, including lithium, copper, cobalt, nickel, and rare earth elements, all of them vital ingredients of clean energy tech, will increase sixfold. Another estimate from Japan's National Institute for Environmental Studies forecasts that electrifying transport and expanding renewable power generation will increase demand for minerals about seven times. The police explains that mining is already a blot on Earth's landscape, albeit a necessary one, according to Rich Crane of the Canborn School of Mines in Cornwall, UK. Even though mining technology has improved immeasurably over the course of human history, 99% of all metal mining still relies on the process of physically extracting solid ores, often after removing vast amounts of overlying rock. The ore must then be processed, creating an enormous quantity of waste, about 100 billion tons a year, more than any other human-made waste stream. Mineral extraction and processing consumes a lot of energy, and the mining industry is one of the single biggest emitters of greenhouse gases. In 2018, its global emissions amounted to 3.6 billion tons of CO2, which is about 10% of total human-generated greenhouse gas emissions. I've got to say, the back of the envelope and numbers here are just right away are, are, are looking problematic. If right now mining is producing 10% of our total emissions of greenhouse gases and we have to increase it sixfold, by 2050, how are we going to get where we need to be? The numbers in this piece uh, I find pretty disturbing. According to an IEA figure, says the article, an electric car requires six times more minerals 
excluding steel and aluminum, than a gas one. An offshore wind plant takes 13 times more than a gas-fired plant of equal capacity. The growth of renewables means that it already takes 50% more minerals to generate a unit of electricity than it did in 2010. For some minerals, growth in demand will be an order of magnitude higher. Yikes! The piece notes that many known mineral deposits are concentrated in a handful of countries which are sometimes quite unstable. Most of the world's cobalt is in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Much of the lithium is in Bolivia and Chile. Battery-grade nickel is concentrated in Indonesia, and 60% of rare earth production takes place in China. And of course, the piece notes that the greenhouse gas emissions aren't the only existential environmental crises facing humanity. The UN recognizes two others, the destruction of biodiversity and waste and pollution. I think there needs to be a third, overpopulation of the planet. It's going to be a lot easier go if there were, say, 5 million people on Earth that wanted to drive electric cars than 9. Anyway, I, I could go on. It's, it's a very disturbing piece. Uh, suffice it to say, I think that an all-electrical future is not going to solve mankind's problems, particularly since you need to have an infrastructure to supply you with it. Anyway, I'm sure all is not lost. We could uh, we could extract these minerals with, with greater care, <laughs> like we do everything else. But it's possible. It is possible. So cross our fingers. Let's talk about let's talk about something else. Let's go back up into space. We always get a laugh over headlines in, in any type of article that says may or might or could. Because really, once you frame the you know the the question that way, you, you can go anywhere you want. But here's the headline, piece from New Scientist. Enigmatic Planet 9 may have been seen by a space telescope in 1980s. The keyword there, may. As we've had some fun in this program talking about in the past, there is some compelling evidence for a large planet weighed the hell out at the edge of the solar system. And you know what? We may need to reach out to Mike Brown of Caltech to see if we can get him on here. He sort of ignored our emails, but uh, he'd be a good guy to talk to. We, we may give it a whack. I'm pretty sure we can get our friends at the Planetary Society to weigh in on the matter. So make a note of that, Mr. Millen. Noted. Anyway, the story is back in the 80s. They launched a telescope that was going to survey the sky in the infrared heat, basically. Someone decided to take the great mass of this data, which was accumulated over many years, uh, look through it for evidence of an, uh, perhaps an overlooked object orbiting at the proposed distance of Planet 9. And what do you know? They found one candidate. Notes the article, the telescope detected evidence for an object three to five times the mass of Earth orbiting 225 times further from the sun than Earth does, which is roughly in planet nine's expected location. Now, just by way of comparison, Pluto is less than 40 times the Earth's uh, orbit out uh, at the edge of the solar system. So this is like this is like six times further out, way out where, baby, it's cold outside. And the piece does quote Mike Brown at Caltech, uh, who's, you know, originally proposed Planet Nine back in 2016, saying that while he found the, these results interesting, he couldn't be sure the candidate wasn't a false positive. And, of course, luck would have it, it probably will turn out to be exactly that. But if it doesn't, we'll be here to report about it. Maybe with Mike Brown. And in other exotic space news, we have an editorial piece from Astronomy Magazine on the subject of UFOs. It was titled, What Do You Think of UFOs? 
which frankly reminds us of one of the hilarious moments in the David Letterman program when he was providing suggestions for how to start up a conversation when you sit next to somebody on the bus. The one we thought was the one we thought was a showstopper was Do you like flying saucers? Well, the fact is a lot of people we know do. Anyway, to quote from the editorial, in response to the recent uptick in reporting about the subject of UFOs and the U.S. government's investigations of them, I jotted down a few thoughts about this subject. As you undoubtedly know, it's frequently in the minds of observers of the sky. How much life is out there in the cosmos? Are any strange things we've seen in the sky evidence of physical visitation by other intelligent life? To scientists, the recent surge in reports and news of government spending lots of money investigating UFOs are curious. Astrophysicists know that the universe is incredibly large, with at least 100 billion galaxies and several hundred billion star systems like our sun's family in each one. We also know through spectroscopy that chemistry in the universe is consistent everywhere. That suggests that life should be common in the universe, although we have only one place where we know it exists, which is right here on Earth. But the distance scale to even the nearest stars is incredibly vast, and the energy required to travel between star systems would be enormous regardless of the technology due to the known laws and limits of physics, which we understand very well, thanks to Newton, Einstein, and others. This is the moment where wishful thinking enters for many. But we don't know everything, so much of what we now know might turn out to be false. That's in quotes, which does summarize a lot of people's thinking. The piece notes that 2,000 year ago, years, the piece notes that 2,000 years ago, Aristosthenes demonstrated that the Earth was a globe. Many could have said then that he didn't know what he was talking about, and that one day he might be overturned. But mathematics, the language of the cosmos, works. So, said the author, it seems very likely that traveling between stars would be an incredibly steep challenge for any civilization. To which he added, it may well be that reports of UFOs tell us more about the nature of people here on our planet rather than any potential advanced life forms that may exist in deep space. Yeah, he's got a point. You know, and if you did have the ability, miraculous ability to fly from uh, one system to the other, why would you keep buzzing Earth and keep allowing yourself to be spotted by, uh, you know, folks out in Alabama, backwoods somewhere? Someone sent a meme out some weeks ago (laughs) pointing out that, uh, you know, if, if flying saucers are buzzing the Earth, you know, when they get close, they probably lock the doors. And even Doonesbury got involved in this, uh, in this discussion, a couple weeks back, the, the, the Sunday edition of, of the Strip started out by saying, Hey, foreign tourists, ever wonder where aliens go when they're on vacation? Well, check out this map. And, of course, the map is, is reported UFO sightings from 1906 to 2014. And while there is a spot here or two in, in like, Australia or South America, quite a bit in Europe, actually quite a bit in the UK. The map is completely glowing from the number of sightings seen in the United States of America. Noted the panel in Doonesbury. And now, with COVID restrictions lifted, anyone, not just well-heeled aliens, can visit America's lonely country roads. Yes, visitors from outer space, said the character Zonker, choose English-speaking, the English-speaking world, especially the USA. It's by far their number one destination. So last panel, he says, so come see the galaxy's best-kept secret. 
the USA. See the USA in your Chevrolet. America is asking you to call. Drive your Chevrolet through the USA. America's the greatest land of all. On a highway or a road along a levee. Performance is sweeter. Now we know aliens are not visiting in Chevrolets. But hey, who's to say dinosaurs ads from like 1952 broadcast out into deep space might not have been picked up by alien civilizations who thought, yeah, yeah, USA, let's let's check it out. It's a little far-fetched, but it 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 may be a potential explanation. And it also may be that Russiagate was was all just a big hoax. Yeah, apparently this guy, this special counsel, John Durham, that Trump appointed before he left office with this specific task of uh, finding fault with the, <laughs> the, the Russiagate probe that the Justice Department uh, initiated. Apparently the special counsel recently indicted a Russian analyst, Igor Donachenko, for lying to the FBI. I mean, Fox News is trying to declare victory on this. Oh, yeah, it was all, see, it was all a bunch of BS, you know, the Russians lying to the FBI. Well, writing in the Washington Post, Max Boot said, Notice the sleight of hand in all this. They're using the Steele dossier and Russian scandal interchangeably. Apparently, some of what Danichenko said wound up in that Steele dossier. Said Boot, Russian, said Boot, Trump's defenders are trying to gaslight Americans into believing the only evidence of a corrupt relationship between Trump and the Kremlin came from the Steele dossier. That's demonstrably untrue. The FBI launched its probe into Russian interference before receiving the dossier when Trump advisor George Papadopoulos began boasting the Russian hackers had obtained damaging information on Clinton. After Trump was elected, Mueller documented more than 140 contacts between Trump's campaign and Russia, and he obtained criminal convictions of numerous Trump insiders including former campaign chairman Paul Manafort and longtime crony Roger Stone, for lying about those very contacts. While working for Trump for free, Manafort continued his long-standing contacts with Russian oligarchs and a Russian intelligence officer, Konstantin Klimenik. He even gained Klimenik campaign polling data. Mueller also documented 10 attempts by Trump to obstruct justice and thwart investigations, which causes us to pause this point and say, how many months into the Biden administration are we and and, and, and no one has indicted Trump yet? We're writing about this at nymag.com. Jonathan Shades said the cover was ultimately successful. Both Manafort and Stone refused to cooperate with investigators calculating correctly that Trump would reward them with pardons for keeping silent. Robert Mueller couldn't establish proof of a criminal conspiracy between Russia and Trump, but he found that Moscow did, in fact, interfere in multiple ways to help him win, and that Trump and his campaign welcomed that help. The investigation also proved that Russian President Vladimir Putin had leverage over Trump. Despite Trump's oft-repeated claim that he had nothing to do with Russia, he was secretly trying, during the campaign, to get a lucrative deal to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. Noted Chait, The GOP-led Senate Intelligence Committee uncovered more bombshells, including evidence that Stone served as a go-between between WikiLeaks, Russian hackers, and Trump. And yes, the committee found evidence that Trump had multiple sexual encounters with specific Russian women while on business trips to Moscow that the Kremlin could have used as compromat. Steele's dossier may be flawed, but Trump was very, very guilty. And we have no objections to any of that. 
All right, in the two or three minutes we have left, we're going we're gonna to end with the obituary. We started with one, we'll end with one. Last month, uh, Jerry Jeff Walker passed away at age 78, and a roommate in college was a huge Jerry Jeff Walker fan. He seemed tickled by some of uh, Walker's lyrics about, you know, as I recall, kicking hippies' asses and raising hell. I was less amused. Contemporaneous article at that time, uh, a, a contemporaneous article then, um, referred to Jerry Jeff Walker's appearance at the Willie Nelson Texas Brain Fry and <laughs> described how uh, a well-lubed Walker addressed the crowd and uh, apparently was trying to quote Dylan Thomas and say, do not go gentle into that good night, but rage, rage against the lowering of light. Well, Jerry Jeff couldn't quite manage it and instead came out with <laughs> rage, rage, rage at the goddamn dark. Anyway, he has one undeniable credit that I have to give him, which was that he is the man who wrote Mr. Bojangles. Yes, Richard Nixon's favorite song was written by Jerry Jeff Walker, and no matter how you shake it, it's a hell of a good tune. The obituaries did mention one fact that I was unaware of and was a little bit disturbed by, however, which was that everybody assumed that Bojangles Robinson was the man that Jerry Jeff Walker met. Well, as the song describes when he's in jail, which supposedly is the real story of how the song was was written. And Bojangles Robinson was a legendary hoofer. He appears with Shirley Temple and many other luminaries in Hollywood productions. But when Jerry Jeff Walker got tossed in jail for public drunkenness, apparently Texas still had segregated prison facilities. Noted the Washington Post obituary. Many people assume the dancer was... Bill Bojangles Robinson, but that was not the case. In his autobiography, Walker noted that because the jails were segregated in New Orleans, I guess it was New Orleans in 1965, not Texas, the Bojangles that he met was elderly white dancer down on his luck. Oh, oh, that Bojangles! The post-obituary quotes a little anecdote from one of Walker's protégés, singer-songwriter Todd Snyder, who recalled there was a night when he and Walker were the last customers at a bar in Santa Fe, New Mexico. After it closed, they're walking down the street about 2 a.m. They heard somebody playing the opening chords to Mr. Bojangles on a banjo. Snyder wrote in his book, I never met a story I didn't like, that this was a bedraggled guy, not a kid, a homeless guy, kind of crazy looking with a harmonic around his neck and his hat on the ground in front of him with nothing in the hat. The guy looked at us. He didn't know Jerry Jeff Walker was standing there. He may never even heard of Jerry Jeff Walker. They listened as the man sang Mr. Walker's masterpiece about a down-and-out street performer, and I could feel both of us getting choked up, Snyder wrote. He wondered if he should say something, but no, I figured if Jerry Jeff wanted to let the guy know who he was, he'd tell him. The only thing Walker said was, that sounded great. He took all the money out of his pocket, put it in the street singer's hat, and then walked away, never told him his name. I knew a man, Bojangles, and he danced for you. Worn out shoes With silver hair A ragged shirt and baggy pants The old soft shoes Anyway, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. It has been and still is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Look forward to talking to you real, real soon.
met him in a cell in New Orleans. I was down and out. He looked to me to be the eye. 